an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go on that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Megan, thank you, and Monty and Laura, thank you. Um, if it's your first time here tonight, I'm Ben. I'm the campus minister here at RUF. We're glad that you're here. We know the past few weeks, we've been kind of been in the doldrums. Hunter prayed about that and embodied that when he was up here, <laughs> the weariness of this point in the semester. So uh, we're glad you're here tonight. Hope and pray it'll be restful for you. A couple of things. We've got a fun couple of weeks coming up. Laura and Monty talked about it already. Uh, in two weeks, we won't be here. If you've never been a night at the farm, come. It's a lot of fun, and the weather should be great that night, but we're not going to be here. It's a way to kind of give us all a break, especially worship team, the large group team that sets all of this up, but it also just lets us get about 10 minutes outside of town together to have fun, to have good food, um, but it's one of my favorite nights of the year. This week in this fall conference, if you're going this is the preacher thing to say, so forgive me, but um, be praying for yourself and other people too. We've been praying because uh, we don't, we would love that the story we get to tell next Wednesday here isn't just a story of that was a great conference, awesome weather, cool camp. The story that we would love to tell and that we're praying we'll be able to tell is that it was a meaningful weekend for you. Connecting to other people, maybe a handful of other people, connecting to God in a new way, so we're allowed to pray for that. We're allowed to pray expectantly for that. So join us. Uh, it would be really neat if all 95 of us are praying for that. Uh, and it'll, it'll change us as we come into this weekend as well. And if you're not going with us, we're going to miss you. Uh, but we'll catch you on the next conferences uh, coming up. All right, what Megan just read and what we're going to be talking about tonight is like a split screen. If you saw on one side of the screen what you think you're doing in your relationship with God. Acts chapter eight is the other side of the screen. What was he doing before you were doing anything and as you're doing something and after you're doing something? It's, it's, it's Luke pulling back the curtains. It's God pulling back the curtains for you, letting you see what he's up to in a life that sometimes feels like it's just you. 
It's just you asking questions, just you seeking him, just you trying to make sense of everything, just you trying to change. This is a moment where if you're a Christian, you get to see God show you. He gives you a sneak peek behind the scenes of what he's been doing all along. And if you're not a Christian, I hope this is encouraging to you because at this point in your life, you probably should be noticing a lot of obstacles. It seems like a lot of resistance between me moving closer to God or me figuring things out. And this gives you a lot of hope because this shows you it's not just up to you. The ball's not just in your court. It's very much in God's as well. Let me pray for us before we get into this. Father, I've had on my mind, because you probably put it on my mind these past few weeks, that apart from your gift and apart from your grace, we will just see you as small, about seven feet tall, not very impressed with you, not very overwhelmed, and we will be scared, and we'll be overwhelmed with everything else in life, and we won't be in awe of you, and we won't pray to you. But you say that when the Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts, we are able to see how immeasurable your love for us is in Jesus. When he opens the eyes of our heart. And you say when he comes, when he opens our eyes, we will know the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of your love for us in Christ. So maybe we start tonight and we repent of having a seven-foot-tall God it was very small and we we would beg you and acknowledge our need before you that we need to see your dimensions rise open the eyes of our heart lord we pray in your name amen so there's one story that megan read about one historical event and the way i want to kind of come at it tonight is looking at this one story through the perspectives of the three different people involved in it there's the seeker that's the ethiopian we'll get into that in just a minute Uh, there is the evangelist, which would be Philip, and there's what we could call the true seeker, the spirit of Jesus. So one story we'll look at, but through the perspective, through the shoes of each of those three people. But before we do, a question for you. How deeply do you carry the question in your heart, do I belong here? Do I fit in? It's a question that's familiar to a lot of us. We carry it around in our hearts in every room that we walk into, every relationship that we walk into. But some of us feel it a lot more intensely than others. For some of us, it's always there. Do I belong? Do I really fit in? And it's everywhere we go. It's become a part of us. And the question can be as simple, or the source of this angst can be as simple as, You were never the majority culture where you grew up. You were always the one who looked, act, talked, dressed differently. And from kindergarten on, when little kids started making comments, you just felt different and not in an okay way. Or this question of do I fit in, do I belong, am I wanted, is there room for me here, maybe comes from your weight or the way you look. And you're just hyper-conscious of that when people are looking at you and talking to you, and that's where your mind is, is are they just being polite? They're just being friendly, but they don't want anything to do with me because of the way that I look. These are the things that make people feel like we don't belong. And not just that we don't belong, but it, it makes me feel that I'm not worthy of your love or worthy of your care or even worthy of your time. That's why we feel like we're in imposition to each other. 
I don't feel like I'm even worthy of you interrupting your life for me because of these questions, do I fit in, do I belong here? A girl, uh, I don't even know what her name was, I, I read it in a book, but a girl who grew up with special needs said the worst thing about having a disability is that people see it and they never see you. And maybe you feel that way with whatever, whatever you're dealing with. Maybe the social anxiety you feel, people see that, they feel my nerves in a big room like this, but they never see me. And they associate me with my nerves. They don't want anything to do with me. Or maybe it's uh, my cluelessness about Christianity and I try to go to these things, I go to these small groups, I go to church, and when people start like wanting me to talk about this stuff, I don't even know how to start my first sentence and they kind of just look at me confused. And they're friendly, but I'm never included. And I feel cut off and I feel put out or I feel rejected. Whatever the source of this angst is of why I feel like I don't fit, why I feel like I don't belong, whether it's a physical thing or a body thing or a social thing or a spiritual thing, the result of it is that we begin to feel cut off, cast out, pushed to the side. I don't know if you've probably come up that giant escalator at Hartsfield, right? Where you're leaving the plane train and you're coming up to the terminal. I think life for a lot of us feels like we're perpetually on that escalator coming up to where you see all the people there waiting, you know? They got balloons and flowers and there's families waiting and then they've got those cards with people's names on it. And I bet that's a fitting metaphor for a lot of us because you come up to the top of the escalator expectant and excited. You're kind of thrilled everybody's about to see somebody important to them and you scan the crowd of where's that person who's excited to see me? Where's the card with my name on it? Where's the, the person running across the terminal to embrace me? And then your heart begins to sink as you realize, and shame covers you, and you realize there's nobody here for me. And then all these other narratives begin to creep in. Not only is there nobody here for me, but nobody's coming for me. Nobody's missing me. Nobody's wanting me. Nobody is looking for me. Which is a big problem if what a guy named Kurt Thompson, a psychiatrist, an expert on shame, has said is true about us. He said we're all born into the world looking for someone looking for us, and we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. So what Megan read a minute ago and what you have in front of you is the story of a man, a little bit older than you probably, who was cut off, boxed out, and you carried around inside of him from a pretty early age, I don't fit in, I don't belong, there's nobody out there looking for me. And he felt like one big imposition to the world, to his friends. And like I said, he's probably in his 20s or 30s because that's what age people in his position were. And Luke is pretty sparing on the biographical details, but he includes a few juicy ones. Uh, he doesn't give us a name, and probably for the reason that girl with the disability said. People see your disability they don't know your name. They don't see you. So all we know him as is the eunuch. And then Luke tells us that he's Ethiopian, which means he's African. And still to this day, there's a vibrant community of Jews in Ethiopia that have their own little kind of community going on. And there were back then too. So he's an African. And he's traveling to Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship. And Luke just does, he says he's not just any African, not just any Ethiopian, but he is a, he's in the royal family. He's He's high up the ladder. Says that he is uh, a eunuch, that he is an important official 
in the treasury, in the queen's household. So what he is, the position that he's risen to, with all of this stuff in his heart we've already talked about, he's risen up to the position of kind of like secretary of the treasury. This is a big deal. And Luke says he's a eunuch, which is two Greek words shoved together, which means bedroom and guard. Bedroom guard is what a eunuch is. They've been around for thousands of years in tons of different cultures, and they were in this culture as well. And what it meant to be a bedroom guard in the queen's kind of, the queen's staff is that you would be a young man positioned outside her residence, her sleeping quarters, and to make sure that you never slipped in there to make a move on the queen or have some romantic tryst with the queen, they castrated you. And everybody who was a eunuch, uh, his family tree ended with him. You're impotent, there's no sex drive, there's a ton of social shame and stigma that gets, la- that gets layered on you for being a eunuch. And so these are the things that Luke tells us about this particular guy. Now, when you add all of those details up, he's an African in Jerusalem, he's a eunuch, he's the last of his family line, there will be no one else running around the world with his last name or his image on them. That he's religious, but he has all of these kinds of questions What you get is someone always looking to see if there's someone looking for him. What you get is someone who I think would resonate really well with what we started talking about tonight, which I imagine a lot of you resonate with as well. And I wonder what he was thinking when he's walking around Jerusalem. Again, an Ethiopian in the first century walking around Jerusalem. When travel was sparse, I mean, traders and and, uh, merchants on the seas would show up in each other's towns, not many other people. So what's he thinking when nobody else looks, talks, speaks, dresses like him in that city? What's he thinking every time he sees a dad with his kids kind of laughing and walking down the road? What memories or sadness does it trigger in his mind? What's life like for him when he tries to go to the temple to worship and he's not allowed in because of what Deuteronomy 21, 3 says, no eunuchs shall enter the assembly of the Lord. They're cut off, they're excluded, they're set to the side. This is his everyday life. And these are the details that Luke gives us. So spiritually, religiously, relationally, he is someone looking for someone looking for him, but there seem to be just so many obstacles to him getting to God. Even if you read this passage and you kind of bring it into our moment in time, you'd be like, man, there's a lot of deal breakers in there. There's a lot of deal breakers in there. He is not culturally or ethnically similar to where the epicenter of the church is. They're Jews, right? They're Jews who have said Jesus is the true king, the Messiah we've always been waiting for. Well, this guy is from hundreds and hundreds of miles away, completely far off from that in Ethiopia. That would seem to be an obstacle. The shame that he's bearing, the shame is a huge obstacle. You have shame, I have shame. Shame separates you from so many things, doesn't it? Shame separates me from you, makes me hide or posture or withhold or maybe compensate or feel insecure around you. Shame separates me from God. I feel like I gotta do this waiting period thing. I can't let him see me as I am, but guess what? Shame also separates you from yourself. You become an enemy against yourself, right? You become the one lobbing grenades at yourself. You're not even okay with yourself. You agree with the crowds and the critics outside of you. There is something wrong with me. I do suck. I don't measure up. 
we know this was on his mind. He had a scroll of Isaiah, which is a really, really, really long and big scroll because it's one of the longest prophets in the Old Testament. And this eunuch has a copy of it in his wagon as he's heading back down to Ethiopia. And of all the chapters that, he's, that, he, that he sticks on, that he digs deep into, that he can't get out of his mind, it's Isaiah 53, which is talking about another man cut off, rejected, set aside, shamed, despised, overlooked. That's not a coincidence. He sees himself on this page as one like him. And then you have the last obstacle, perhaps, his own giant spiritual confusion. He has tons of questions without any answers. What does this mean? Who is this talking about? What does it mean for me? What's the relevance this stuff has to me? Is this spiritual pursuit of trying to find God even worth it anymore? Is it time to throw in the towel? You would think all of those things are giant obstacles. And yet, this guy is asking really amazing questions. These are the kind of questions, like when you hear a person asking, you're like, you start to salivate. You're like, this is, this is awesome. They seem like the light bulbs are starting to come on. The wheels are starting to turn in their heads. He's asking these questions, and, and, and this is a, an interesting point for us to pick up on. This guy, by God's grace, we'll see in a minute, has not slipped into that slippery path of unbelief that just says, well, if God's going to do something to me, you better do it because I'm going to sit here on the couch. If he wants to change me, then let him change me. If he wants to show me who he is, then what, what are you waiting for, Lord? Part the skies. Speak to me in a way I'll understand. And we can, we can kind of just sit still stagnant, expecting lightning's going to strike. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, unbelief is automatic, but faith has to be kicked into gear. We know there's something going on in this guy's heart because he's traveling hundreds of miles to go to a place that was probably pretty hard for him to go. He stood out just a little bit. <laughs> he was the talk of the town. But he goes there to worship in, or if he can't get in, near the temple. He has a scroll, and by the way, nobody had scrolls back then. Scrolls were in libraries or scribes had them. They were what the equivalent today of tens of thousands of dollars. Nobody was literate. He apparently was an educated rich guy in the royal family in, in Ethiopia, but he has this thing and, you know, while his wagon's going back to Ethiopia, he is reading through it. Granted, it is a long drive, and there probably wasn't much other stuff to do, but let's give him some credit. He was reading his Bible, right? Something is going on. He's not slid into the trap that I often slide into, and I know you do too, of stagnation, of sitting there thinking that the way to God is just sitting here. You know, just wait till I'm acted upon. Jesus has never called you to just sit there. He said, come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden. He said, repent, believe this day. He said, come and lay your burdens at my feet. Whatever, he's, he's calling forth action, and that's the test of, do you take him at his word? Do you actually believe what he's saying or not? The person who does not take him at his word, who does not believe what he's saying, just sits there and blames him. There's something going on in this guy. And even though he's reading his Bible and unicorns aren't popping out, and there's no magical moments. He's not getting much out of this experience with Isaiah, right? Because when Philip finally shows up later, he's like, I don't know what I'm reading. I'm not getting anything out of this. What is this all about? Look, friends, I want to say this real quick before we move on. If, you're, if this is sounding anything familiar to you, I want to encourage you to press on. 
And I want to encourage you because you might feel discouraged that it's futile to seek God. It's futile to seek Jesus, to try to connect the dots and understand this stuff. I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm just going to drift. I'm going to coast. I'm going to slide. And I want to encourage you that God hasn't just called you to come to him, to move towards him. He said he will never turn away those who do. Jeremiah 29 says, you will find me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Part of what you might be going through right now is a pruning and a refining of your heart. Because maybe you've never pursued him with your whole heart and until you experience the dryness and the distance between you and him, there'll never be a desperation or a ripeness in you to truly know your need of him. And so maybe that's why it feels like he lingers you are ripening to the point of truly apprehending your need from him, for him. But press on. Jesus himself says in John 6, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, will come to me, and I'll never cast out any of those who come to me. He says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be answered. Jesus is telling you the truth or Jesus is lying to you. What will you do with that call? Will, you, will, your, will your feet begin to move towards him? Will you begin to pray to him and say, I don't even know, I want this to be true, I desperately want it to be true, make it true for me. Or will you remain sitting there as he's just called you to action and saying, there's nothing for me to do but sit. Remember, unbelief is automatic. It's autopilot. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. Just sit there. Faith requires being kicked into gear. And if you feel dull, if you feel like you're about to throw in the towel. You feel like the word has gone dry for you. You feel like you pray to the ceiling every morning or every night, or you don't even pray anymore. Please understand the place that the, this eunuch was by the time Philip found him. He's on a long journey back to Ethiopia, probably by himself or with a couple of servants driving this wagon. And he's right at the point of banging his head against the wall. This isn't working. This is pointless. I don't know what all this means. I can't connect the dots. It's just noise to me. What does it all mean? And it's in that moment that the Spirit sends one who answers all of his questions. It's in that moment that God shows up. So friends, press on and find friends who encourage you to press on and to keep moving. Don't give up. He feels like nobody has eyes on him. Remember this theme of I feel like there's nobody out there looking for me? Well, it turns out there is one looking out for him, and literally looking for him. If you didn't have God's version of this event, kind of a God's eye view of this day's event, Philip would get the Oscar, right? Just for being an amazing guy and looking out for the outsider, he saw the stranger in the room, he went over, he introduced himself, he had a heart-to-heart -heart with him, he kind of steered it towards a spiritual conversation. If God had not shown you, done the split screen and said, this is what I'm doing through what seems to be a very ordinary event of a dude just showing up and crossing paths with this other guy, then Philip gets the trophy at the end of the day. But it turns out that Jesus himself has said to this guy, I have eyes on you. You're looking for me. I've been looking for you. And he says to Philip, go south on the road that leads to Gaza, which is outside of Israel, which is very far away from the temple. And he doesn't tell him what he's going to find. It's like telling you, go to I-85 North and just wait. And you're like, well, what's there? What am I going to do? Just wait. 
And while you're waiting at McDonald's, just being like killing time or whatever you're at, somebody walks in there next to you and you see them reading a book. And you just happen to say, what are you reading? And this kind of thing happens. That's what it looks like for Jesus to pursue his people. It is through the ordinary events of the day, he's doing these extraordinary things. And through Philip, he pursues a man he's been pursuing since this eunuch was born. There's an anonymous hymn. Nobody knows who wrote it, but it's been around about 150 years. And this guy today and back then was singing a song that some dude in the 1870s wrote. It's called, Always Thou Lovest Me. And one of the stanzas says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found of thee. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found of thee. It's a man who, as he looked back at the ordinary events of his life, realized it was never me just seeking the Lord. This, it was never one screen. It was always split screen. Every move I ever made to him, every question that came into my mind, every curiosity, every moment of desperation, every inkling in my head of maybe there is a God out there who is for sinners like me, who can put back the pieces of a life lived like mine. Any inkling of that on the split screen is the spirit of Jesus compassionately moving towards you. You say, has he ever been looking for me? And he says, always, always. It's just now that you're beginning to apprehend what's happening on the other side of the screen and has been happening all along. Well, that's the Ethiopian's perspective in this story. That's what this is like from his point of view, but what's it like from Philip's point of view? Jesus uh, dispatches Philip. He sends uh, Philip through his spirit which must have been an odd command for Philip because if you were here last week, some of the most unprecedented cool stuff was happening in Samaria. Samaria was a spiritual waste land. It's how you think about a lot of countries today. Nothing good will happen there. And Jesus, said, and Jesus has been turning that place upside down and Philip is just going about his business another day preaching. He's like, how many people are gonna be converted today? How many people are gonna connect the dots and realize that this is all real, and it's real for them. And then Jesus says, hey, go south. Go on the road to Gaza, a desert road. He's not saying go to Times Square. He's like saying going through this road in the middle of nowhere. And I think it would be kind of like me getting a flat tire on the way here tonight, me just because I'm the preacher, not because I'm special. But me on the way here tonight, I get a flat tire and, you know, around Millage, and, and, and Jesus says, hey, you're not going to RUF tonight. And where I get stuck by is my old fraternity house, <laughs> right by the varsity. And he says, this is where you're going to be tonight. And I'm thinking in my head, uh, and I can say this because I was one, I'm thinking in my head, really, Jesus, because this feels like more fertile ground. This feels like a more receptive audience. And he says, no, Ben, wherever I am is re where a receptive audience is. And he says, wherever the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is, that is where fertile ground is. It doesn't matter what other variables are going on. It doesn't matter what is happening. If you are a person that the Spirit is at work, you are fertile ground and you are a receptive audience. He will get your attention. He sidetracks Philip from what seems like such good, meaningful work, and he tells Philip to go to somewhere where he has no clue what's going to happen. And Jesus says, almost, you know, that, you know that parable of he leaves the 99 sheep to go and pursue the one? That's this happening in real life. 
And if you're a Christian or you're becoming a Christian or you will be a Christian, Jesus will do this to some other, some other shepherd. He'll say, hey, leave the 99 because I see Joe over there. Or I see Blake over there. Leave the flock. I've had eyes on this person you've never even seen and you don't even know their name, but I do. I've been following them. I've been pursuing them. So Philip goes and Philip begins to engage this guy. He just assumes maybe this is the reason Jesus sent me here. He still doesn't know. The Spirit finally says go to that chariot or that wagon. And so he goes. And I think Philip goes, and I think we will begin to go in the places the Spirit nudges us and begin to talk to the friends he nudges us to talk to when we believe that God is actually God. I think a lot of times we think that we have to twist his arm into like a full Nelson move to get him to be God. He says he came to seek and save the lost. Why do we feel like he's so hesitant to seek and save the lost, right? Am I right? <laughs> we feel like we gotta pray some super long, elaborate prayer to get Jesus to show up in your family or your friends. Didn't he go to a cross to do that? And yet we feel like he's so stubborn and so indifferent to the plight of our friends or the plight of your own heart. You don't have to twist his arm. When you believe that he's actually more dedicated to the mission and out front of the mission in front of you, you'll begin to follow him more. When you think he's kind of sipping a drink in the office while you do all the work, you'll grow so resentful and you'll stop going anywhere and you'll stop talking to anybody about this. But Philip goes. Philip hears the call and Philip goes. If you believe that the Spirit is at work, you'll begin to look for him to be at work. We pick up Eli at Timothy Road Elementary every day at 2.30 and we have a little card that has a number on it and they go get Eli. And the kids, it's cool to see the kids come out into this just sea of parents because they'll get to the door and just, they'll start looking around. Where's mom? Where's dad? It's really fun to see. Those little kids absolutely with no reservation expect mom or dad to be there to pick them up. Why? Why would they doubt it? Mom or dad said they would be there to pick them up. When you believe that God is God, that he does what he says he will do and is who he says he is, when you believe that he loves sinners and is able and willing to change lives, you come out of that school wide-eyed and bushy-tailed looking for him to be at work. Your days actually become you looking for just where is he at work, how is he at work, never is he at work. Is he at work is a depressing question because there's the possibility the answer is nowhere. Christians who know who he is and what he is doing ask different questions. Where is he at work and how? And where can I join him in that? We begin to pray to him too. And we have time for people who are really different than us. I know this too. I'm doing a lot of assuming about y'all. I really hope you're like me or else I'm really being vulnerable tonight and putting myself out there. I think you're like me. We have a secret profile of who you think is capable of becoming a Christian, capable of believing this stuff. And they're usually people with backgrounds just like yours. Or they grew up in the church, or they're a really good person, or a spiritual person. And we, we're eight chapters into Acts, the early church's movement. You, we should already know by now, if we've been paying attention, there is no profile. This is a, a, a rowdy crew here already that's being assembled. You have Greeks and Romans and Jews. You have Africans and Middle Easterners. You have people of every political persuasion. You have men and women, rich and poor, people with status, people with no status, slaves, all of them gathered together. And you say, what's the profile of a Christian? It's this. Someone on whom God has had compassion and mercy. That's it. 
there are no other variables. There are no other characteristics. There are no other marks that you could say, that's somebody I should invite to RUF or church versus that's someone I shouldn't. And the fact that we have these secret profiles is the reason there's only certain people we ever talk to this stuff about. We really do believe they're unsavable, they're unredeemable. God has no business with people like that. But friends, weren't you that? I know I was. I was somebody that everybody else would have written off as a lost cause. And many of you were too. And here we are because of the way Jesus pursues his people. Really quickly, let's get practical with this. How will Jesus use you? How will he use you? He will use you to connect dots that he has already put in other people's brains or hearts. He's not asking you to necessarily drop all of these little seeds and these dots in people's heads, but he will call you into your friends' lives or strangers sometimes, mostly your friends, and you will arrive on the scene of a work that's long in progress. Never does it start with you. You will show up to a construction site where there's already a first floor built or a second floor or mostly built, just needs a roof or ground is being broken. And what he will call you to do is connect dots that he has already put there. That's what Philip does in this account, right? There's a ton of dots this guy already has. For whatever reason, I don't know why, he's been compelled that there's some kind of truth or weight or reality to this Judaism stuff, to this Old Testament. He goes to the temple. He goes to Jerusalem. He's curious. He investigates this stuff. But the dots weren't connecting. And so what did Jesus do? He puts Philip, and he says, Philip, here's the coordinates. Get yourself there now. And Philip sits there, and it's a very ordinary thing. It's not some light bulb comes on. It's what you do every day with your buddies. They went and had lunch, in a sense. They probably were eating. This is a long conversation. He began with that passage. Doesn't presume he ended there. He began there telling him the good news about Jesus. They had a conversation. That's it. Did you ever know Jesus can do this in a lunchtime conversation? This guy, by the way, probably turned Ethiopia upside down for the gospel. He's probably the reason there's still a huge Christian population in Ethiopia today. Some of you are different because of a lunchtime conversation, a silly little throwaway comment or one dinky little Bible study or one question a friend asked you or a parent asked you or one little sermon or whatever it was. Who did God or who is God sending in your life to connect dots he's already put there? My whole lifetime up until here was people putting dots into my head, my parents, my Sunday school teachers, my church, and without those dots, I wouldn't be where I am. They were critical. But it was my friends here. It was Brent, and it was Hal, and it was Jason, it was Rob, and it was Brandon. Those were my friends who connected the dots, put it together, and helped it all make sense in a way that hit home with me. And you know where they started with me when they met me? Where I was. And we have this phrase we say here. I hope you don't think it's cheesy because it's true. We meet you where you are and don't leave you stuck here. Did Philip meet this Ethiopian eunuch exactly where he was? Yes. Who told him to? Jesus. Did he leave him stuck there? No. He talked to him. He answered a question. He presumed God was already at work. He showed up ready to, to participate in that work. And I love it. I love it that God starts with us where we are. Where was the eunuch? He was in a place of everything we've already talked about. Cut off, forgotten, not seen, 
set out, rejected, despised, ashamed. So where does Jesus, just in such a tender moment, where is Jesus willing to start the conversation? These verses. And he says, who is this one? Who is this person who was cut off and despised and ashamed, who had no descendants, who had no offspring? Tell me who this was. Is it you, Philip, or was it somebody else? And Philip began at that passage and showed him the good news about Jesus. Friends, the gospel is not just generically good news, it's good news for you. I can't say all of your names right now, but it's good news for Noah, I see him. It's good news for Ben. It's good news for this guy. It lands on your doorstep and it brings a thrill to you and to your story. Rankin Wilburn says that Jesus says to me about my horizon, he looks over my shoulder with me and he says, Ben, see that? Isn't it beautiful? You're free. Let's go there. Jesus says to one that he has already renewed and he is renewing. He says, this is the new you that I'm gonna make. You see that? Don't you wanna be there? Let's go. You're free. The gospel isn't just good news. It is good news for you. It fits inside of your narrative, your despairs, your shame, your hurt, your sin patterns, your places of being stuck. It's good news for you. To the spiritually dehydrated woman, Jesus says, I am living water. To the spiritually wandering and confused, he says, I am your shepherd. To the cut off, the set aside, the overlooked, he says, I am one who's been set aside, overlooked, and cut off and rejected on your behalf. To the anorexic, he says, you don't have to hold control. I'm in control, and I'll take care of you with my power, with my control. Let go. To the sexual addict of whatever variety, he says, false intimacy has imprisoned you, and I'm here to release you from its grip and show you what it's really like to be seen and loved. He is so willing to meet you and start where you want to start. What's the sticking point? What's the confusion? What's the question you have for God? Do you know how able and how willing he is to say, yeah, let's talk about that thing. Let's start there. Friends, you will have to have other people in your life if you're going to get anywhere, though. This is the spirit of Jesus. He can do whatever he wants, and he doesn't snap his fingers, and, and this guy becomes a Christian. Through an hours-long conversation, he works through a diddly little guy like you or a diddly little girl like you, trying to figure out, how do I answer that question? What verse should I talk about next? That's how he changes lives. That's how he does it. When you begin to believe this, it really sends you out there towards other people. You want to join him in what he's doing. When you begin to know that the gospel is good news, not just for the, for the crowds, for the anonymous crowds, for humanity, but for you, that's when the lights begin to come on. That's when the hearts begin to soften. It's this compatibility we've been talking about. When you know there's a compatibility between who you're not and who he is, that's the moment that you know something big is about to happen. Old you is about to die and new you is about to be raised up. I want to end with this. I just want to read you a few verses of Isaiah 53. It's the chapter of that scroll that Jesus used to show this man, I don't just stand outside of your story saying, hey, come to me over here to a whole different narrative. I meet you inside your story and I, I put it in a new frame of context. 
Or better yet, I pull your tiny little story into my bigger story. This is what it sounds like when that happens. This is Isaiah 53. I'm just gonna read you a few verses that had to have been a part of the conversation that day. I'll read you a quote and we're done. For this, this person, this Messiah we now know, grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should be impressed by him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrow and he was well acquainted with grief. This is Jesus Christ we're talking about. And as one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely this is beginning to sound like what the Ethiopian would have heard as, his, as the two stories between Jesus and him become one. Surely he has borne my griefs. He has carried my sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity, my sin, and upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace. By his wounds, I was healed. I was like a sheep who had gone astray. I've turned away, but the Lord has laid on him my iniquity. Friends, that had to have been a part of the conversation that day. As this guy begins to see his story pulled up into Jesus' story and the two become one in the most beautiful way and Jesus looks over this guy's shoulder and he says, hey, whatever your name was, you see this horizon? You see this person over here? You're not cut off. Your life isn't a dead end. Shame is not the final period on your story. Your life is hidden up in mine now and all that I'm doing in this world. That's the offer he puts out in front of you. That's what he calls you to. Friends, will you cry out for faith to get up on your feet and begin to move towards him as he reaches out towards you? Or will you sit? And will you say, he hasn't done anything. He's gotta come to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would the fruit of this message in our hearing it, would the fruit of this message in our hearing it be that our feet begin to move? Why? Because you are already at work in us moving our feet towards you. And I pray a really practical prayer for every person in the room tonight. Would you undeniably reveal to them two or three people you've put into their life to connect the dots, to make sense of the confusion, to lift the fog, to help them know where they are on the map, where they are with you, where they are with each other or some situation. Would that be a specific thing you do for us tonight? Show us two or three names, two or three people that you have dispatched into our world and two or three people that you're sending us to, to listen, to answer, to ask, to bear patiently with, that we might see you as you are. We pray this in your name, amen.